It's an opportunity for us to hear from guest speakers who have quite literally influenced our thinking. And as we close out that series, I couldn't imagine a better person to come and to share with you, with us, this morning. Chris C. is a pastor in Houston, Texas. Uh, he is a pastor of a church called Ecclesia. Uh, he's a church planner. He's a writer. He's a father. He's a husband. You'll get to know him in other ways here in just a few moments. But he has influenced me. Uh, Chris and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, he has influenced me, and he has influenced this church uh, because Chris, through the work of Ecclesia and through his own personal mission, has partnered with Living Water International, uh, of which we are a longtime partner as well, in many, many ways to bring the good news of Jesus Christ and water literally around the world. Uh, and he has influenced us in that. Uh, Chris is somebody that, for me, is a guy who I uh, look to and say, if he can say it, I can say it, uh, because he's a guy who boldly, boldly in, engages with culture uh, to bring people to Jesus Christ. And so, um, so I want you to help me in welcoming my friend, Chris C. Thanks, Larry. Well, part of you, I'm fired up to be with you. As Dave said, I've known Dave for many years. Um, I have so much uh, love and respect for your pastor, for Pastor Ray, and, uh, and what you do, the ways that we get to partner together. Um, so I come to this place, and I already like you. Um, uh, and that part of me makes me want to uh, get you to like me too. And, uh, and I've tried to figure out how to do that. I thought about uh, pretending to be a Cubs fan. Um, <laughs> But I'm not a Cubs fan. Uh, I've actually studied these things, and I believe you guys fit four of the five major criteria for a cult. Um, so things like rituals with goats, there's a blind loyalty, there's a sense of abuse that you endure, and uh, I could write a Ph.D. paper on it, and uh, it would make a lot of sense. But isn't it fun that you guys have such a great team this year? Isn't that a, that's a, it's amazing, actually which is only going to enhance your disappointment in the end, right? So, so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm actually I'm, I'm here largely to preach Jesus to you, uh, but I, I get to take my 10-year-old to Wrigley tonight. So uh, he's going to get to go to batting practice, and it'll be fun. It's, it's going to be really fun. So I'm, uh, I, then I thought, well, I should bring a message that makes you really like me. And then I prayed about it, and God told me to talk on sin. So you may not like me at the end of... Uh, all of this, but I'm at least going to bring uh, the word that God's called me to bring to you, and I, and I think it'll be fruitful. Uh, I, I wonder, in a world that, um, that would love to do away with sin, even among Christians, um, we would love to create a version of Christianity that's devoid of our understanding of sin, right? So we have major uh, public figures now saying things like, I'm an excellent Christian. I've just never asked God for forgiveness for anything. I don't know about you, but it doesn't fit in the context of the Christianity I experience, where even this morning, before I preach, I'm reminded of places that I've failed, that I need God's forgiveness, the forgiveness of others. It's a constant journey, right? And my fear for many of us is that uh, we're trying to uh, examine problems in our life, and we're often misdiagnosing them. We're treating the wrong problem. We think the problem is a financial problem, or it's a communication problem, or most often we're like, it's a problem with her, right? Um, 
It's somebody else's problem. It's a problem with culture. And most often when we look really hard, we know that at least in part, if not in whole, the problem lies within. And we're offering too often the wrong treatment for the real problem. Uh, A friend of the church brought me a story a while back of uh, a friend of theirs, uh, a young lady named Jean Sherrod Abbott. Now, Jean was born and diagnosed at a young age with cerebral palsy, has spent has lived a productive life, married and had kids, but had lived with the limitations of being in a chair or bed uh, all of her life. On Good Friday, uh, uh, two years ago, she went into the doctor and the doctor noticed something new in some of her testing and suddenly realized in a period of about 30 minutes that Jean did not actually have cerebral palsy. She had a neurological disorder that the doctor gave her a pill on Good Friday and by Easter, Jean was walking. She, um, she was in... It's unbelievable, right? And, and has lived a, now a life thriving with her kids and able to do things she never dreamed she could do because she offered, really, was offered uh, the right diagnosis and the right treatment. Um, today, that's part of what I want to, to share with you. My, my fear is that for many of us, we are caught in some traps uh, that are just not in any way uh, helpful for us. I, uh, about a, two months ago, I had what I think may be one of the most significant pastoral care experiences in my life. Now, I've been pastoring for 25 years, so I've had a lot. Uh, times in hospitals and hospices with people. But I was uh, on my way to Waco, Texas. I went to Baylor University many years ago, and my daughter is headed off there actually this week. If you're a praying person, I'll drop her off and move her into her dorm on Thursday and cry for weeks maybe. So just um, And cry as they send me the bill. I was there begging for money. <laughs> Uh, because you can't afford, they, they don't really accommodate pastors' lives and, uh, and salaries into what school costs these days. So I was there begging for money and, and, uh, and along the way um, wanted to visit my mentor while I was at Baylor, uh, Professor Dr. Glenn Hilburn. So Glenn Hilburn was, like, took me in at a young age and saw some gifts in me and just chose to invest his life in me. Uh, and some of my classes taught me how to read the Bible, personally taught me a lot about how to take care of myself and to take care of others. And Dr. Hilburn had been diagnosed with cancer uh, about a year before, and I knew that he was deteriorating, but I hadn't seen him. So while I'm in Waco, I call his son and just say I'd like to come see him. Uh, He was in home hospice care. Uh, They had moved his bed into his living room, and his son said, just go in the back door. He's rarely recognizing people, but just go in and visit with him. And so I did. I went in, and When I walked in the door, he lit up and called out my name, and it was maybe one of the best 30 minutes I've had uh, over the course of my life with someone in that spot. I got got to do what we do as pastors, right? We we pray with you. We talk with you. Um, I I read to him from the scriptures. Uh, He taught me a class on Revelation many years ago as a young man, taught me how to read this really beautiful yet complex book that may scare you. Don't let it. It's a book about hope, and it's about Jesus' reign. Um, he taught me so much about it. I read to him from Revelation 21, this part of the book where uh, John has this vision of heaven. It's beautiful, right? If uh, Dave or Ray or one of the pastors here comes to visit you in the hospital and they read to you Revelation 21, just know you're going to die very soon. So um, (laughs) if that's the passage that they choose, you're, you're on your way. So just be ready for that if that's what you hear. So 
But I got to read to him Revelation 21 and, and talk to him about translation decisions that we made. I led a Bible translation project largely inspired by things that Dr. Hilburn and others taught me, a project called The Voice that's published by Thomas Nelson. And, and then I did what I often do when I visit someone in the hospital in that place. I just said, Dr. Hilburn, is there a hymn that I could sing for you? And his eyes lit up and he said, yes, but you choose, right? And I remembered that he loved this old hymn. If you're really old school, you'd know it. Uh, a hymn called In the Garden. If you know it, would you sing it with me? It just goes, I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses And the voice I hear Calling on my ear The Son of God discloses and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other. You guys are good. You're better than the 8 a.m. I'll tell you. you uh, the uh, so you can imagine, like I'm, I'm, I'm holding his hands and he's holding my hands and he's crying and I'm crying. And then I said to him, Dr. Hilburn, do you know um, why I sing to people in the hospital? And without hesitation, he said, because I told you to. And, uh, and and it was the truth. In the early 90s, he pulled me aside and he said, Chris, when you go visit somebody in the hospital, you do what all pastors do. I want you to pray. I want you to read the Bible. But you have a beautiful voice. I want you, when you go to the hospital, I want you to offer to sing to people. Just ask them. And so for 25 years, I've been going to hospitals and saying, my mentor suggested I should sing to you. Is there a song you would like me to sing for you? I've been doing it for 25 years. Right? Not only did he remember um, that... Uh, that he loved me and cared for me. He remembered giving me that very specific piece of advice. And for me, um, getting to have that experience with him before he passed was so important. Here's the sad part of the story. I, I was this close to not going to see Dr. Hilburn on that day. Um, the truth is, over about a decade, really 17 years since I started my church in Houston, I've since had four kids. I have a Church has just grown and grown and grown every year. It keeps me really busy. And I, I have not been a faithful mentee or spiritual son to Dr. Hilburn. His, his wife passed and I wasn't there. He got sick and I hadn't spoken with him. And the internal tape I'd been telling myself in my mind was that he didn't want to see me. He was probably so disappointed in the ways that I had not been there for him. So I was afraid to walk into that room. So part of me was telling me he would uh, he'd be filled with disappointment. The, the truth was really different, right? But part of what I want to talk to you about is just that. I believe that maybe you're like me, and there are some places that you're running a tape inside your head of shame, of places that you failed. I wish I had been better to him for over a decade, but i got to tell you, if that shame had led me to continue down that path instead of getting that moment with him, 
it would not have been good for me, and it wouldn't have been good for him. I got to go back and to lead the graveside funeral service for my mentor and to sing that song over his casket and to his family, and that was important for me. But this pattern of thinking that tells me because I've failed in the past, I'm going to fail in the future, that says sometimes my failures somehow define me, they're not good for me. And I believe, Parkview, they're not good for you. And so what I want to invite you into today is a life that is shameless, a life that acknowledges that sin's a reality and that we often will fail, but that God has something better for us and that our failures can never define us. I'm amazed in Scripture that we have so many characters that are so deeply flawed. Really, everybody's deeply flawed in the Bible except for Jesus, right? we got murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves and all of these just broken people. And yet somehow Jesus shows up and chooses to use them. One of the characters that, that fascinates me the most is, is Peter, the man that Jesus called out and said, you're going to be the rock on which I build the church. And Peter lived big. So when Peter succeeded, he succeeded big. And when he failed, he failed big. Right? I mean, you've failed a bit, Right? We all know it, but not everybody knows it. Like the people in your family know some of it, and some of the people that are close to you know it. Um, But imagine you're Peter, and your big failures are like in the Bible. Like we're going to get to heaven and be like, Peter, why would you curse and say you didn't know Jesus? Like what's wrong with you? Who would do that, right? All of these big failures in the Bible. He had big moments of success, right? Jesus was asking for the first time in many ways, who do people say that I am? Then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus was like, ding, 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 you got it, right? Good day for Peter. Then not long after that, right, Jesus is explaining what's going to happen, what he's going to do. And then Peter chews out Jesus, right? Not a good idea to chew out Jesus. Like, don't do that, right? And then the same one, Jesus, who had given him the name Peter, the rock, calls him something else. You remember what he called him on that day? Satan, Satan, right? That's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan, right? (laughs) That's a very bad day for you, right? So Peter had just, he's experienced these huge swings, right? And and I'm fascinated with this passage in the Gospel of Mark. Um, The disciples had been out fishing. They couldn't catch anything. It's one of those days, which is a bummer when that's your job, right? So, but they come back in and they say essentially, like, there's no fish to catch. Like, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, we're going out fishing. And they're like, Jesus, we're not going to catch anything. But when you go with Jesus, it's a little more fun, right? And, and it tells us, right, that the two sons of Zebedee, we see this in Mark 5. Put it up on the screen for us. It'd be great. It says, Simon's fishing partners, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, along with the rest of the fishermen, all of a sudden, when Jesus is with them, they see this incredible haul of fish. They're all stunned. Like the nets are full. They're overflowing. But especially Simon. And it tells us in Mark that he comes close to Jesus. It says he kneels down in front of his knees. And Simon says... I can't take this, Lord. I'm a sinful man, and you shouldn't be around the likes of me. Apart from you, this is what shame looks like. Peter knew, like, I've done bad things. 
Like, I can see that you're up to something different, and I don't deserve this. Some of you have felt this exact emotion. You've, you've been given the gift of a baby. And instead of relishing in that moment, you've wondered, why do I deserve this gift with all that I've done? You've, you've gotten big promotions. You've had really good days. And instead of, instead of relishing God's grace, you've been playing tapes like mine that say, I don't deserve for him to welcome me in this way. I, I don't deserve to be greeted in his home at his hospice bed in this way. I have not been that good to him. And Parkview, it's so beautiful that then Jesus turns to Peter. And he doesn't deny that he's failed. He knows he's failed. But he says, Peter, don't be afraid. Some of you, that's all you need to hear today. Don't be afraid. Simon, from now on, I'll ask you to bring me people instead of fish. And Jesus declares on that day, Peter, it doesn't matter what you've done. Your failures don't define you. I'm going to use you in big ways. You're going to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. And that will ultimately be what will define you. I, I was uh, getting ready for Mother's Day. As a pastor, there are certain holidays that are just hard, right? So at my church, I preach four services over the weekend. Uh, they start on Saturday. They end on Sunday night. I don't get a lot of time off on the weekend. So when it's time to celebrate something like Mother's Day, I often feel like a failure in those places, right? So I'm trying to figure out a way to pull it off. And I'm, uh, when all my brain and creativity fails, I just punch something into the Google machine, right? So I'm like celebrating Mother's Day at work. That was my thought. Like somebody's going to have a great idea for me. So I pull it up and I, instead I find an article uh, about a guy named Michael Breeson. He, uh, he had just had a baby, he and his wife, and he was trying to figure out how to celebrate Mother's Day well for his wife. She was a nurse. She was working the hospital on Mother's Day. And so he, um, he decided he would go get a cake and food, balloons. Uh, he'd show up at the, uh, the hospital in the break room and set things up so that when she had a break, she flowed in, spent time with the baby, with him, and they celebrated Mother's Day. went well. He uh, began to do what good husbands do and load everything up. He wanted the flowers to be cared for, and he carefully buckled them into the seat. And it was only as he was beginning to drive home uh, and he was pulling onto the freeway and heard people begin to honk at him that he realized that he had left the baby seat on top of the car. Right? And I'm going to tell you right now, the baby's okay, okay? Because I don't want to do that to any of you. But what happened was this baby seat flies off of the car, uh, people are around to see it. A police officer is at the freeway, sees this. The, the baby's okay, but the police officer pulls him over, writes him a ticket. He obviously has to at some point call his wife, tell her what's going on. Because it became public record, he ended up in the news and in the paper as this father that leaves the baby seat on top of the car. Right? So imagine with me, you're Michael Breeson. What's happening inside your heart and head? His wife in the paper says essentially, like, he's, he's a good dad. He just, he made a mistake, right? And she says she forgives him. You know at some point she's bringing it up, though, right? I mean, <laughs> you know at some point. I don't know if they're in a fight. I don't know if they're shopping and she wants something. But she says essentially, like, I want this. And you left the baby in the car seat <laughs> on the car, right? It, it, you, you just imagine... Um, with those kinds of failures, what it's like to not look at your kid and allow that moment to define you, to be able to shake it off and move forward. I'm amazed in Scripture in so many ways to see people like Peter 
that move forward despite his failures. Right? I'm going to read to you in a minute from 1 Peter, but this is what I want you to know. What you experience often in your life and I experience are these um, different things, and we often don't know how to categorize them. Uh, one is called guilt, and guilt's really good. Guilt is, I did something wrong. And guilt leads us to do a couple things, right? To um, repent and ask God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of other people that we may have harmed in some way. It's, it's little things. It's our tone. It's moments of selfishness. It's moments of neglect, right? Where you just took care of yourself and you didn't look out for anybody else. And, and if you don't have some moments of guilt, right? If you've gone, I, I sat with this kid who's a worship leader a few years ago. He, uh, he said to me after a session I was teaching, I didn't know this kid. He just said, Could you, would you have lunch with me? And I'm like, yeah, we'll go. We grab some Mexican food. And as we're beginning to eat Mexican food, he said, you know, I just can't remember the last time I sinned. And uh, I thought that's the strangest thing I've ever heard, right? Because I'm sitting over a large burrito, and I'm never more aware of my sin than when I'm sitting over a large burrito. And there's this sense of like, if, if you're not connected to your brokenness and failures, you're, you're, you're not super spiritual at all. Like, you've missed it. It, it. Being connected to Jesus will mean being connected to the places that you fail and being humble about it, right? And not self-righteous in those, those ways. Guilt is a really good thing. I'm trying to watch it with my kids to say, do they know when they've done something wrong? Do they feel it? Do they sense it? Does it lead them back? Guilt can be good. I did something wrong. Shame's entirely different. Shame says, I didn't do something bad. I'm bad. Shame speaks to our identity. And this is what I want you to hear clearly, Parkview. Your identity is not in the places that you failed. Your identity is in Jesus who has redeemed you. And Peter makes it really clear. This is what he says in 1 Peter. He says, so get yourselves ready. Prepare your minds to act. Control yourselves and look forward and hope as you focus on the grace that comes when Jesus the anointed returns and is completely revealed to you. He says, you've got something to look forward to. Be like obedient children as you put aside the desires you used to pursue when you didn't know better. Since the one who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. Now pause with me for a minute and think. If you're Peter... And you're speaking out to the church saying, listen, people, I want you to be like obedient children. And I want you to be holy just as God is holy. What do you think the internal tape that Peter's running in his head is as he begins to speak these words? Who am I? Who am I to tell these people to be holy as God's holy when they know all these things I've done and all these places I've failed? But you know why he can do it? Because God's grace was real to Peter. And Peter could say, I've failed. God's forgiven me. And I hold my head high and I move forward and I seek to, to be obedient and faithful today. Part B, do you see what a gift that is? If you and I stay caught in the traps of shame that tell us we're bad, we're going to miss what God has before us. Peter goes on. He says, for the scripture says, you're to be holy for I am holy. If you call on the father who judges everyone without partiality, according to their actions, then you should live in reverence and awe while you live out the days of your exile. You know 
that a price was paid to redeem you from following the empty ways handed on to you by your ancestors. It was not paid with things that perish like silver and gold. He says, the reason that you don't live in shame is because a price was paid for your failures and it wasn't with earthly things that you can buy, but with the precious blood of the anointed who was like a perfect and unblemished sacrificial lamb. This is the story of scripture from the beginning until now that God came to redeem all things and that by redeeming all things, he died as the perfect and blameless, spotless lamb so that all of our failures would be wiped away, right? It's why when they gathered for the Passover meal, remember Jesus gathers the disciples, they're going to have the big Passover and they come in, they go to this upper room and they've gotten some things and you remember what was on the table when they got there? There was bread, there was wine, but it was the Passover. What were they missing? Lamb, right? I'm, I'm from Texas, right? So if, we, if you invite me over to a barbecue, I'm going to expect what? Meat. There better be meat there. Like if I get there and you got pickles and onions, I'm going to say, this is not a barbecue. I'm from Texas. I know what a barbecue looks like, right? The disciples show up and they're like, this is Passover. We got bread. We got wine. Where's the lamb? Jesus is saying what? I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. I'm the one who will be sacrificed so that you never live in shame, so that all of your sins can be forgiven. Now, Parkview, that's good news. It's really good news. Peter goes on, and he explains, God determined to send him before the world began, but he came into the world in these last days for whose sake? For your sake and my sake. My prayer for each of us today, Parkview, is that we could live into this truth so that we're not caught in the same traps over and over and over again. I got a few thoughts I want to share with you about how as a community we can live into those things well. A few things you can do. The first is for you to live um, separated from the bonds of shame, free from them. You've got to live authentically. You can't pretend to be better than you are. That trap of saying, I, I, I need to feel like I'm coming to church, so I need to dress up and try to look good and as though my life is perfect, right, is not a good impulse. It's not helpful for any of us. And the truth is, if you think about the people you like the most, think about it for a minute. Who are the people you like the most that you're really drawn to, that you really love? I would suggest to you that those people are people that you connect deeply with, not because you think they're amazing and perfect, most often, you kind of know that they're messed up. In fact, there's this strange thing where you're like, I, I'm kind of messed up in the same ways, right? We don't form great friendships because you look at people and go, you know what? You're awesome, and I'm also awesome. We should be friends. We're both awesome, right? It doesn't happen that way. We, we develop deep bonds because we say, you're kind of broken in some of the ways I'm broken. I could use your help, and maybe you could use mine. Isn't that how most of your friendships form, your relationships form? And so part of what I'm suggesting to you is that your community, your life groups ought to be a place that you live really, truly, authentically. No pretense, never faking it. Now, one of the only ways you can do that well is the second thing that I want to call you to do. You've got to create safe spaces. You've got to be able to trust each other. And... This idea that's so prevalent in the world that says, I make myself feel better by looking down on others, it doesn't work in Christian community. 
And if there's any sense that the people around me, these people in my life group, these people in my family, that they will gossip about me if they knew some of the things, we'll all clam up and hold it tight. And it'll, it'll harm each of us. So what we have to do is live in the kind of communities that make pledges that we are never going to gossip or put down each other. We're going to lift each other up, even in our brokenness and even in our failures. And then lastly, this is what I want you to do. I just want to be the kind of community, and I know you already are, and that we're being shaped in that way, where small acts of love tell the whole world we're radically different than anybody else. And I, I believe this. I believe that the big things we do are really important. We're going to keep doing big things. You're going to hear more about things you're going to get to do uh, in Kurdistan and Iraq, a place that our church is deeply involved. We're going to keep doing things with living water together. But it's going to be these small things in our life. Right? A few years ago, I was on my way back from Canada. And as you get older and you travel a lot, many of you are familiar with this, you just start getting much more careful about what you eat. I get in routines, right? So you don't need all the details. But for me, like breakfast, it's really important, simple. Every, every morning for breakfast, what I had today, coffee and a banana, you know keeps everything moving. Everybody's happy. It's good, right? That's what (laughs) coffee and banana every day. That's what I do. And so I'm flying back from Canada and I make my way through the airport club. My father-in-law helped me join many years ago with a long lifetime membership. You can go in there. Those places are great because you can take all their stuff. They got newspapers and coffee and bananas. And I go in, I get all my stuff and I get to the plane and United because I fly a lot. They said, we're going to upgrade you today, Mr. C. I'm like, great. This is a good day. You know, so I'm getting ready. I'm flying back. It's a Saturday. I'm going to land and I'm going to preach the next service on Saturday night. You know, I'm just keeping rolling. I'm preaching in Canada. I'm going back and I'm getting in my seat. I got everything laid out, my banana, my newspapers, my Bible. I'm all ready. And I hear the guy behind me um, who's traveling with his three-year-old. He said to the flight attendant, I'm, I'm headed to a funeral. I didn't really uh, pack well. And, uh, and I'm realizing now, my son, who's three, like, um, what, he needs some breakfast, but none of the things that they had to serve on the plane were something he would eat. And he was saying, I really need some fruit, like maybe a banana. Um, and I'm trying to ignore him, right? Because I have a banana. I want to eat my banana, right? So the flight attendant goes around and she, uh, she looks around. She comes back after the plane takes off. She says, sir, I'm sorry, we, we don't have any fruit. We can't find anything. So I'm not exactly being perfectly Christ-like. The truth is, right? I've, I've examined in my head, I know what it's like to travel with a hungry three-year-old behind you. And I realize, like, it's in my best interest to give this kid my banana, right? <laughs> so I turn around and just say, sir, you know, I've got a banana. I'm happy to share the banana with you for your kid, right? And he's just like, thank you so much for the banana. You know, I'm like, it's, it's fine. It's, it's a banana. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to share it with you. So we're, we, we go a little bit further. He taps me on the shoulder again, and he goes, I can't thank you enough for the banana. And I'm... And I'm literally like, hey, I stole the banana from the airport club, right? So, so don't worry about it. Like, I didn't even pay for it. It's, it's totally fine. And, uh, and then I pull out my Bible. I'm starting to study to get ready to preach. He taps me on the shoulder and he says, sir, are you, are you like a Christian? That's why I'm like a professional Christian. It's like, it's like what I, it's what I do. And I, I tell him I'm a pastor and, and he says, I can't believe a pastor gave me a banana, right? And I'm like, well, they teach us in seminary to pass them out, and it's just part of the, it's part of the routine. And, and, um, and then he begins to tell me, he says, well, you, you know, my dad was a pastor. And it's clear he, he didn't have a good relationship with his dad. He said, my dad would not have shared his banana. And then 
I end up with a crick in my neck because for about 30 minutes, he just begins to unload on me this, this version of Christianity that he experienced that I would probably say is not really Christianity at all. A lot of hypocrisy, a lot of lies, a lot of arrogance, not a lot of love. After 30 minutes, I paused and got to tell him stories about churches like Parkview and Ecclesia. People that live outwardly, they want to give more than receive. What it means to live in a community where you can be yourself and where you really encounter the love of Jesus in a way that changes you. By the end of my 30 minutes, he said, you know what, if there's a church like that around me, like I'd like to go to it. So I said, well, when we get off, we'll, I'll pull up something in Canada close to you, right? So I get a zip code. They're kind of weird in Canada. They're not normal numbers like ours. But we find a good church close by, and I email the pastor and say, hey, this guy's going to come to church, and his kid really likes bananas, and, you know, <laughs> you should be ready to greet him. And from time to time, now I'll just get an email from him with an update. If they're walking with God. The subject line is always just banana. I know it's him. And, and it's in those small places, Parkview. It's in these really small places that we share small things. And God's love is amplified. It's really big. And my prayer for each of us is that we could walk into those places, that we'd have eyes to see them. And part of what I want to suggest to you is that if you're living in shame, you'll miss them. If your head's down and you're discouraged, because you think you've been defined by your failures, you'll be missing the beauty of the gospel, that God's made you to be a fisher of men and women, and that we get to go out and do it in really simple ways, just loving people. So would you let me take a moment to pray for you and just ask God to bless you? I'm so grateful we get to be on this journey together. Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the power and the truth that we find and the scriptures and the reality that you choose to take a man like Peter, a man who's broken, a man who could feel beat down and sorrowful because he has failed and he's failed in big ways. And you choose to step in and show him grace and forgiveness and speak words over him that say you have a purpose and a meaning for him. And Lord, we believe that as we read and we hear the stories today that you likely chose Peter so that you could speak to each of us, to me and to my brothers and sisters here, that if you could use Peter, you could use us. And so today, God, we ask that you would give us the faith to embrace your forgiveness to acknowledge that we have failed and will fail again. And we're going to allow that guilt to point us down uh, back to you towards the right road. But that we're going to live in the abundance of your grace. And we're going to share your love with the people around us. And we're going to enjoy the good life that you've made us for. We thank you, God, that even in a song like this, we can echo what we believe is true. That the lamb that was slain is worthy. And that we live in that freedom and we hold our head high, not because we are perfect, but because you were perfect for us. We thank you, God, because we believe this is good news for all people in all places. We pray this together and we pray it in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.